Paul, there is essentially nothing more that we love than when we hear from listeners. And we received a really thoughtful message through our website from a listener who identified as a cisgender white male who is currently struggling with guilt and shame on his journey as a white man working towards equity. Guilt and shame is not only common, it is an inevitable part of the identity process to become a white anti-racist. We say identity process quite a bit in this podcast because it's one of the main reasons that this podcast exists, right? We wanna go through the identity process with our listeners as white men. Well, there is an actual framework that maps out the identity process towards being a white anti-racist and can provide clarity as we are on this process to where we are going. So for those who are feeling guilt or shame, hopefully this conversation can help you realize that one, it's totally normal, and two, gives ideas for how we can work past it. This is The Modern White Man, the podcast where myself, Paul Johnson, and me, Ken Lawrence, discuss how to be a modern white man who is anti-racist, anti-sexist, and understands his role in creating an equitable society. Like many of the frameworks that we have shared so far in this podcast, this is one that you shared with me, Paul, so many thanks. I don't know if anything will be as good as you sharing the unknown authored (laughs) quote, when you're accustomed to privilege, equality feels like oppression, but this one is up there. This is really good. You know, one of my favorite parts of this framework that hit right away is that a lot of the structure is pulled from Dr. Beverly Daniel Tatum's work and why are all the black kids sitting together in the cafeteria? You know, I've quoted Tatum a few times throughout episodes and big time in the intro episode because it's, you know, my whole premise on the need for white men to do identity work and the need for this podcast essentially sparked from that book. So I just love this stuff. I think Tatum's work is super powerful. So I'm pumped. We will have more Tatum quotes to share with you all. So this framework is called The Ladder of Empowerment and it's by Tima Okun. So Okun identifies as a white person and is part of DR Works or Dismantling Racism Works. We'll link their website and the Ladder of Empowerment in the podcast notes so you can check it out in more detail because it's really good stuff and just about everything that we're pulling from it comes from that. So check that out. And fun fact, she was a big part of creating the white supremacy characteristics list that's on the Showing Up for Racial Justice website. Oh, nice. If you've seen that. Yeah. She was a big part of putting that together. So, yeah, I think a real leader in in anti-racism work. I didn't even know that. And she struck me as like a real thought leader in doing this just by how accurate reading this made me feel. I was like, yes, yes. Like every time, like every (laughs) new thing, I'm like, yep, that's what I've felt. That's what I've experienced. It's just, it's, it's really good. I know you and I are really excited to talk about this here. So this ladder of empowerment's purpose is to quote, help white people understand our identity as white people within a racist system which assumes our superiority while at the same time challenging that assumption and replacing it with a positive anti-racist identity, end quote. I really love the last seven words here in challenging that assumption, replacing it with a positive anti-racist identity. So positive is a big word here, especially as we will be talking about the guilt and shame part. It is imperative 
to have a positive identity as a white person to be anti-racist. Yeah, this is something that for a really long time, I didn't believe was possible to have a positive identity as a white person, you know, which is really kind of born out of the guilt and shame, which we'll talk about later, Mm -hmm. you know, but guilt and shame is a normal stage in this ladder. So, you know, if you're listening right now and you're really feeling stuck in this guilt and shame, and I feel like, you know, for me, I was stuck in it for a long time, years, even, Yeah. yeah. You know, it may feel like there's no light at the end of the tunnel, but there there is. And that's what this this ladder, this stages of development provides, is that there is a, a way forward. You know, it can feel like, I don't know if you've ever struggled with depression, but I, I, I have. And I, there was a, years ago, I had PTSD. And there was moments where I was feeling something, feeling really, 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 really low, feeling very hopeless. And it, if you had those moments, it feels like it's never going to go away. Yeah. You know, it, mm-hmm. and, and it's really scary. And, and maybe I'm, I'm sort of over-dramatizing this here, but, but just for me, especially in those guilt and shame moments, it felt like it, this is just always the way I'm going to feel. Yeah. You know, I'm not speaking for all people with depression, but, you know, it passes, right? Like, eventually come out and you, you have hope. And, but hope is the key. Yeah. And I think that's what this ladder provides. Hope that there is, a, there is a way to have a positive identity. And it's in the context of being anti-racist. And I think, that's, I think that's the key because it's really difficult to have the word positive and white in the same sentence, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It, like the idea of whiteness and the yeah. construct of whiteness. And I think that's where the struggle was. Mm-hmm. But this, this framework provides that there is, a, there is a way to create a positive identity. So, yeah. um, so there, there is a way out if you're feeling stuck in that right now is what we're trying to say. Yeah, and I don't think you are over-dramatizing it. Dramatize, drama, dramatize, dramatizing. Thank you. <laughs> Over dramatizing this, because the our listener who reached out, you know, he he really mm-hmm. was. It was a very thoughtful note. We really appreciate mm-hmm. him reaching out, but he clearly is like really struggling with this. And so I think that that is a really good thing to hear because I think a lot of people are really struggling with yep. it. So the ladder has nine stages. The first is the furthest from being an anti-racist, with the ninth having that positive anti-racist identity. All right, so I'm just going to lay out the nine stages here to give you an initial idea. So the first one, again, furthest from being an anti-racist is I'm normal. Second stage, what are you? And then you move into the third stage of be like me. And then from there, it's the fourth of denial and defensiveness. And then once you start to move past denial and defensiveness, that's when you get into stage five of this guilt and shame. From there, it's open up acknowledgement at stage six. Then it moves to stage seven, taking responsibility slash self-righteousness. Moving into eight, it's collective action. And then finally, the ninth stage is community of love and resistance. So that's just an intro to give you an idea of what this ladder is like. It can be tough to visualize so many stages without seeing it. So again, I recommend checking it out in the white paper we linked after the conversation. I think I've said in the past, I am like, I cannot hear things and remember it without mm-hmm. like needing to look at it a many times. So those of you out there like me, check that out. You can even look at it during this conversation if it's helpful and you're able. But if not, you can check it out after. So a couple of important notes that Okun makes. The first is that one cannot move from a lower stage to a higher stage without going through each intermediary stage. All are necessary. So for example, if you are like, I think I'm at stage two, what are you? You can't tomorrow be like, "Ah, all right, I get it. I'm at stage six now, right? No, each stage is necessary in the process. The second note that she makes is that one can move up and down the ladder. 
And while you cannot skip stages while moving up, you can skip stages when moving down. So if you are moving up and you're like, oh, I'm in, uh, I, I'm moving out of guilt and shame into stage six of open up and acknowledgement, like the next day you could have an interaction that brings you back down to four of like denial and defensiveness. So it's almost like a two steps forward, one step back, three, you know, two steps forward, two steps back. That's all part of the process. So know that like Paul and I still feel guilt and shame, denial and defensiveness from time to time. It's not like once you make it to seven, you're there forever, right? Mm-hmm. And the goal as we work towards being anti-racists is to stay for shorter periods at the lower stages and longer periods at the higher stages. So that's that makes sense, right? You can move down. You may have moments, but it, you don't get stuck there as long. And, and the more and more you work towards that ninth stage, the goal is to spend more time up there. And I think it's important to say you will move down. Yes. Right. Like, right. Especially with white fragility, especially as you move up. We start to face more challenging. Well, I shouldn't say that. I think probably at every stage it's challenging. It's it's uncomfortable, you know. But there's always going to be, especially with this um, discomfort of moving towards anti-racism and this pull back into the comfort of our privilege and, mm-hmm. and and whiteness. So, you know, I think it's very normal to to move back, and it will happen. But I like that idea of spending less time moving back and, yeah. and more time moving forward. Yeah, and as we'll talk about, you know, in the in the later stages, you start become comfortable enough to push yourself to be more open to uncomfortable situations. And as you become more comfortable in those like situations that you may be challenged or pushed back, like you will fall back. You mm-hmm. will like be confronted or have somebody maybe point out an area that you're or said a racist thing or something and you will fall back. Like you said, mm-hmm. like that's a really inevitable part of it all. Well, it's an inevitable part of any skill or any growth. Like I think yeah. about for me with baseball, baseball is my sport. You know, there'd be times where I'd be pitching really well and then I'd have a game where I'd just get absolutely torched yeah like i remember a game in college i give up 10 runs in three innings and i was like what in the world happened like i was pitching really well and all of a sudden this like really really bad game and i'm like did i regress like what am i not as good and i think that's just part of it yeah you have step back you Mm -hmm. step back but then you move forward again so you just the, the important thing is not getting stuck in that when you regress or feeling like uh, what's the point of trying to move forward when you know I keep taking steps back? Yeah, right? I think right. that's a really critical part of it. Yep. A helpful outcome of this ladder for me that I really didn't see coming is that it gave some clarity for what we are focusing on with this podcast. So I think that could be helpful for not only Paul, you and me, but also our listeners. You know, I think that really what we're working with our listeners on is from stage three, which is be like me through stage seven which is taking responsibility, self-righteousness, to then confidently and productively move into stage eight, which is collective action in our own lives. You know, stage three through seven is a lot of individual identity work and having people the same identity to do that with is really helpful as we'll talk about. So it was helpful for me to see that, yeah, that's what we're kind of doing with our podcast here. And so stages three through seven are the ones that we are going to talk through today the most with a little more focus on stage five, guilt and shame, which links to our listeners message. Okay, so let's discuss moving up this ladder, which is at the core of what we've been attempting to do with our first 15 episodes, right? We are now kind of have this framework. We are trying to move up this ladder, which I love. Like you said, it gives some hope, right? Something to aim for. So with our focus starting at stage three, we won't spend too much time on stages one and two, but just to let you know, stage one is I'm normal, 
which is where we do not see ourselves as white and assume racial differences are unimportant because they're individual, right? And then moving into stage two is what are you, which is the point at which we have our first meaningful contact with a person of color or where we may be forced to notice firsthand that we're different and that racism or unfairness might be at work. You know, this is where we start to really feel some discomfort for the first time. We start to recognize our personal or family prejudices for the first time. And like these discomforts really start to to start to creep in at stage two. And then that leads us to stage three, which is really what we'll start talking about. Yeah, for the record, I probably, well, I for sure was spent time in stage one and two. Mm-hmm. St- stage two, specifically, my first encounter like that was in college. Oh, yeah. Like it's, it's. It's embarrassing to say, but that's just, you know, I grew up, like I mentioned, in a pretty much all white town. It was literally like my junior year of college that I was like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, there's something there's something amiss here. Um, and so just, just to let listeners know, like, I think we all, not all of us, but many of us start at stage one at some point. Yeah. So, yeah, for the record, stage two is was something that happened just about 15 years ago. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So... Um, it shows how how long you know. I think it shows how long it takes to go through these stages. But if I would have had this 15 years ago, I think I would have accelerated mm-hmm. through it much faster than 15 years. But yeah. I don't know. That's just another hypothesis. But anyway, so we'll start with stage three and dig into that a little bit. Stage three again is be like me. So in this stage, it's really starting to challenge the idea of individuality. The idea present here is that we're all the same. If there's a problem, it's that individual. It's their their fault. It's their own doing. There is anger of getting lumped in with other white people. So a Tatum quote here, Dr. Lee Beverly Tatum again. When we begin to hear about systemic racist barriers to achievement and success, we hear that as meaning we don't deserve and didn't earn what we have, making it even more difficult for us to identify as part of the white group, since doing so erases our precious individuality. Yeah, this really makes me think of an opinion piece that I read. I like reading opinion pieces every once in a while. And this one was called Not All White Men Are the Same, so naturally, I was like, ooh, what is this mm-hmm. about? And read it, and I was so uh, motivated that I wrote a counterpoint argument to it. Mm. I wanted to just like practice writing what I would, re- how I would respond to that, and I posted it on our website. So if you want to check out our one of my blogs on there is responding to this. But essentially what the article was is there was this college professor who, as this stage says, like, there's anger of getting lumped in with other white people. He was having anger of getting lumped in with other white people and specifically other white men. And his argument was he has been exposed to white men his whole life and they all have different lived experiences. And, you know, he's met rich white men and poor white men and hardworking white men and Jewish white men and Christian white men. Like like half the article is different lived experiences He's like, and so lumping all white men together is unfair and takes away from individuality. Like it was such a good example of stage three, be like me. And so I I wrote like a little something responding to that. You know, we live in this society where racial and gender hierarchies exist, like you and I have said, and impacts everything. Being a white man or identifying as a white man adds to our individuality. It's like something that can't be denied. 
we, it doesn't take away from our individuality. Of course, we all have different lived experiences. You and I are not the same person. We have had completely different lives. But we, the white man aspect of it is undeniable. Anyway, you can check it out. It's something like that. If You can check yeah. it out on, on our website if you're interested. Yeah, that's great. And, and it's another one of the examples of defensiveness from white men, especially when we feel like we're not at the top. You know, we talked about that earlier of, well, if I'm not at the top, then it's someone else's fault. Yeah. You know, or, or I blame myself or I blame someone else. So then we, we go to challenges we've had to overcome or, or obstacles we've ha- we've faced. And um, it's just ironic. Yeah. You know, ironic that, that that doesn't make us connect the dots to then people of color and, you know, lumping people of color, which is what racism is right. and racist ideas and beliefs. So and, and like I've struggled, too. And like Tatum yeah. says here, like, you know, it means I didn't deserve or I didn't earn or yeah. I don't earn what I have. I like how this is a natural stage of the progression. Yeah. Right. You just can't get stuck there. Yeah. And again, it's normal. Like, right. We, we, you know, I have to catch myself because I, I don't want to get this righteousness. Oh, I'm not in stage three. It's normal because we live in an individualistic society right like no 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 kidding we all think this way because that is the dominant culture of the united states is individualistic so it's very very common to be here and it's it's tough to get out of because there's there's psychic safety here and there's that pushing against cultural norms which is starting to think more at a collective level right a systemic level rather than individual level so that's and that's always again it's gonna be uncomfortable because we're, we're learning something new and then to move to the next stage, you have to begin to understand the pervasiveness of racism, which again is uncomfortable, yeah. and that leads to yeah, this the stage four, and that is denial and defensiveness. It is then again natural, and remember, you can't skip stages here, right? So right. this is a necessary part to feel denial and defensiveness. I would say, Paul, in my years of doing racial equity work. That's where I find most white men, I think, in like mm. my experiences is, is really like defensiveness because it is so uncomfortable and it's yeah. so hard. And, you know, you have to think about individuality different. So this is a tough stage to be in. I think this is an easy one to really get stuck in. And I really love the way that Okun describes this phase. She says the logic is that if I don't talk about it or spend time with people who make me think about it, I won't have to then be uncomfortable right? This is when we say or think things like, why do you have to make such a big deal about race all the time? We may believe that too much attention is placed on cultural differences or that people of color are overly sensitive. We deny that racism is the problem and believe that talking about racism is the problem, right? It's become such an important part of workplaces and in the news these days is that I think that a lot of people are being overwhelmed. It's like, you know, we're just talking about it too much. That's the problem. Like, that's a part of this stage of the denial and defensiveness. Mm-hmm. When we do admit that racism is happening, we see it as isolated incidents rather than a daily constant grind. It made me think of that message you received on LinkedIn from that white man. Again, we don't have to keep going back to him, but just like it's a good example of what this stage is where he said, like, sure, racism, is, racism exists, but... It's just pockets of individuals here, there. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not me. It's not the people I know. It, you know, we're just talking about it too much. He also said that, that we're looking for ways to apply racism to. And so that was a good example of how denial and defensiveness can come out. You know, what's really interesting about this stage, too, is that I think there's some nuance here in, in context. I'll, I'll give an example to kind of explain what I'm, what I'm thinking. I'm just kind of having kind of having an epiphany right now myself here. Yes. This is my first real-time epiphany oh my gosh really so so uh, i'll give you an example i was working at an organization uh, a couple years ago 
And there was a group of employees who sent an email to the entire organization and said that that they, they were sort of you know in the corporate hierarchy at the very bottom and they they, they sent a, a list of demands essentially saying that they're they're not getting paid enough they're not getting great benefits the system essentially that the organization itself is very oppressive right and there's this this group that's really being oppressed and um, a lot of inequities are being created and one thing they they added to that email was the white supremacy characteristics list mm. and that was the first time i've seen it and I remember, I, I still remember to this day, opening up and being like, they're being really overdramatic. Mm. Like, they're being super overly sensitive, right? So as you're reading those things, I was like, I remember thinking that myself. Yeah. And the funny thing was, so at that time, I just kind of like brushed it off. Like, this is nonsense, you know? Yeah. But months later, I read it again. I was like, they were spot on. Oh. But the difference was I was no longer working there. And when I was working there, I was in sort of the national office. I wasn't at the C-suite leadership level, but I think the difference was that I was in—I was sort of defensive of the the organization. I was a part of the organization, and they were questioning the organization. I felt part of that, hmm. right? So, so I felt like I was, you know, on the side of the organization. And so that stage, even though I would say at the time I I was not in denial and defensive stage, that stage came out hmm. in full force. Yeah, and I was defensive and in denial because by admitting that they were right, that made me complicit. Yeah, is that the right word? Yeah, right. Yep, complicit to to what they're saying, and so so I you know my ego essentially came in and be like, nope, nope, brush it aside, say they're they're oversensitive. Even I'm sure the angry black woman thing came to mind too. You know, all of those racist tropes and defensiveness things came out right but then as soon as i i cut ties with the organization i saw it completely differently yeah that tickles into stage five which we'll talk about next the guilt shame and blame because a lot a lot of that is taking assertions of systemic racism racist policies unfairness in the workplace personally so like yep. it's exactly. it, yeah it's like interesting that you you have yep. you felt a connection to that organization that is I mean at least stage six so it's it's pretty far going where mm-hmm. you can start to separate yourself yes. from those things and start to be like oh let's look at this whole thing instead yep. of like taking it so internally yep. yeah and I think what was significant too was the amount of stress that I was under the organization was under and I th- I would guess and this is the case with the individual or sorry, the intercultural development inventory, another tool that could be helpful is that when you're under stress, you regress, mm. right? Maybe there's a saying there. When you're under stress, you regress. Hey, how be. about that? It should be. So I would imagine the same thing this ladder, right? Like when you're under strain, when you're under stress, and that's also, it's it's part of the stress response. It's survival. You start to look yeah. inward and and you think about me, not not other people, right? Yeah. So I think that was another part of it too, that that I was under immense strain. So that it made me regress to kind of down this ladder. The other thing I want to say too is, you know, this idea of being uncomfortable. And, and you know, you mentioned this earlier that discomfort really is, is inevitable. And it's, and it's essential. I think that's really important too. It's inevitable and essential part of growth and learning. Resma Menaka, and we, we've referenced him in his work before, he refers to this as clean pain. So he defines that as choosing integrity over fear and standing in that fear with integrity and moving towards the unknown. Hmm. I really, really like that. And I think it ties really, really well to this ladder because it's always scary to move towards the unknown, right? Because we don't know where we're going, <laughs> yeah. right? So maybe, it's, so it's scary, it's confusing, 
you're kind of spinning in circles. And, and sometimes when there isn't a known, we don't move at all. We get paralyzed. Mm-hmm. Or we just wander around, right? B- bumping into things. We don't know where we're going. That's why I love this framework, because there is a known. We know where we're going, which makes it easier to move. But that doesn't necessarily mean what we're moving toward will be comfortable, mm-hmm. right? So you think about, like, imagine getting lost in the middle of a jungle. And we don't know where we're going or where we can't see any landmarks. So we'd probably just wander around aimlessly trying to find a path or something. But over time, if we just keep doing that for days, we'd probably just lose hope and give up, mm-hmm. right? But then imagine we see a landmark, maybe a village, we see a fire, but between us and the village is miles of thick jungle that we've never traversed. So it's it's going to be difficult and even painful, and we might even encounter, you know, poisonous animals or leopards or whatever, but at least we know where we're going, and that yeah. gives us hope. That that actually reminds me, I heard about this story of a, a woman who, she was a girl at the time, I think she was probably like 10, 11, 12, who survived a plane crash in the middle of, I'm not going to get the place right, but in the middle of a jungle. She essentially fell thousands of feet in her airplane seat, uh, survived the crash. That in itself is yeah. amazing, right? She was the only one who survived the crash. But then she she made it to safety. And the way she made it to safety is she found a, a stream and she followed the stream because she knew that that stream would get to a larger stream, which would get to a river, which river means people. Mm-hmm. That just kind of came to mind because that gives you hope. You're like, okay, I know this is going to lead somewhere, so I'm just going to follow this until I get to where I need to go. And she eventually did. Wow. She made it to this river, and there was people boating by, and they saved her. It was incredible. And the stream might start really small and hard yes. to grasp and yep. hard to see and hard, like yep. unsure, but it gets bigger and bigger and bigger yep. and bigger and easier to grasp. Right. right? And, and people speculate, like, if she wouldn't have found that stream, she probably wouldn't have survived. Because, mm-hmm. like, how would you know where you're going? Right. So I, I think that's a, w- a way to think about this framework and how and why I feel is really, really helpful. Because for a long time, I just felt aim- totally aimless. Yeah. And it was a really crappy feeling. Yeah. But this has really kind of helped me feel like I know where I'm going. Yeah, that is really helpful, having that guide. Because this is a hard stage yeah. to leave. I mean, really, denial and defensiveness, like I said, like I see this a lot. I think this is an easy one to get stuck in and having that compass and knowing that is part of the process. You can even start to then check your defensiveness when it happens. I remember years ago, I would always try to do that with myself. And it was one of the most helpful ways to start to move past this stage was to be like, Ken, I think you're, this is a little bit of defensiveness here, right? Like, why are we feeling defensive here? And if you like really dig into it, you, you know, it's, it, you can then put some clarity around it mm-hmm. because what we have to do to move into this next stage is we have to acknowledge the reality of difference and racism. So moving past denial and defensiveness, it's actually like, okay, racism is real, right? Difference between races is real. And then that leads mm-hmm. to stage five. So yeah, stage five, guilt, shame, and blame. You know, I, I, if I could guess where the majority of the population of whites fall into, this would be the stage. You think the majority of whites are in stage five? Okay, well, okay, <laughs> let me let me let me back up. Majority of our listeners or those. Okay, yeah, I've been I've been privileged to be a part of a lot of being around a lot of white folks working towards racial yeah. racial equity yeah so i think maybe it's just who i've been hanging out with maybe recently, in like their non-profit careers right yeah. like yes, you and i thank have you. had that thank and you. like racial equity work yeah. yeah 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 okay let me take that back <laughs> <laughs> yeah um 
but but I also want I would say you know it's just it's and I I would guess it's probably well I don't know I don't want to make too many speculations here but it it's one of the most powerful ones I think I think so too you know? because if you think about I think you're really right in like pointing out like we only have our own experiences yeah. and and stuff but you know I've been experienced with many a white people who are not you know working too hard to be anti-racist yeah. right but yes. like I would say I I think when I was looking through this is that stage three into stage four. So that's be like me and denial and defensiveness. Unless you're making Mm -hmm. an effort, you could deny and be defensive until the day you die. Like I think that there's something really good about getting to guilt, shame, and blame Mm -hmm. because it means that Mm -hmm. you're now starting to recognize the true impacts and like, That is, that's, so for those like this listener who reached out and those who do get in guilt, shame, and blame, like, that's good. You're making some progress. Yep. I mean, think about, like, bullies at school. Like, they just keep on bullying. If they never get to guilt, they're never going to, like, understand or realize the consequences, the hurt that they're causing other people. But if they get to guilt, that's a really good sign. Yeah, right? making progress. Because then they're like, hmm, wait a minute. What I'm doing is bad. Like, it's a sign of morals and ethics, yeah. right? Yeah. So, yeah, it's 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 very, very much a healthy place to get to if you're coming from a previous stage, mm-hmm. right? So so this stage, um, and this is one that our listener who reached out is currently at and, and experiencing, it's a really tough one. It really is. You know, this is a point at which many white people begin to understand that we we have to take responsibility for racism. We have to reckon with what's come before us, even if we weren't personally involved in its historical foundations. And that I think that's where denial and defensiveness kind of combines with the guilt yeah. and shame. Because yeah. that can pull us back in a denial and defensiveness. Be like, well, I never enslaved anyone. Yeah. Yeah. I never called anyone the N-word. You know, so so it's very easy to to regress back or denial and defensiveness can pull us backwards. And you know how important we both think talking about this, the history of it all. And like the first how many ever episodes, we purposefully started with the history because we have to understand that history. And there's Mm -hmm. almost like no way to be introduced to the the true history without feeling some guilt. Recognizing that it's here, it's there, I've benefited, Mm -hmm. but I'm not personally involved in it. It doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. Like like Mm -hmm. it still exists. Yeah, it's a tricky one to get through. Yeah, it's like you and I didn't create the concept of race, but we perpetuate it. For sure. You know, so mm-hmm. so that's where responsibility yeah. comes into play. And that's where it's tricky. Mm-hmm. You know, we have to reckon with the past, but, you know, the blame, we, we don't have to blame ourselves, but but we do, the blame comes in with our, our everyday actions and even things we have done in the past ourselves individually, yeah, right? for sure. So, so anyway, so this is where, you know, the quote, quote unquote, white is not right, or I'm personally bad feelings can surface. And, you know, of course, as we said, that's really uncomfortable. Yeah. I mean, no one, no one wants to feel that way, especially when as white folks, we're used to comfort, you know, we're used to being the good ones, you know, the supreme beings and, you know, having it really great in this world. So it can really be jarring, you know, and even if ex- accusations of racism are not directed personally at us, we we personalize them as kind of as I talked about, you know, even though this is a really tough stage to be in, it can also be a stage of profound personal transformation. So even that is a helpful thing to remind ourselves when we're struggling in this stage, big time change can come a bit. And, and, and I can attest to it, you've said it yeah. in the past, that that, that clean pain to, to reference Resma again of 
really reckoning with what we like especially there's one thing to reckon with the historical what the country has done but when you get into what i have done Mm -hmm. and things i do and when you're able to work through that in a healthy way that is that is transformational yeah i think it says dr d'angelo says it's liberating and it really is Mm -hmm. and it's it's so hard to get through i agree with you like I can attest that it was years and years and years in the making, so it's not yep. like overnight, but it was yep. almost like all of a sudden it clicked, yep. and there was a tangible difference in how I felt yep. about talking about racism, people bringing racism up to me. It was almost like it all clicked. It was really, yep. really hard, but I like can't even tell you how much better it feels yeah. like if you can work through this. Yeah. yeah. And it sounds very counterintuitive. Yeah. But the more that I admitted that I was racist, admitted to racist things I've done, the more of a weight lifted off my shoulders. Yep, exactly. It's really weird. You know, mm. now it makes sense. But at, before, if I were to think about that before, I'd be like, that's crazy. Why would you feel better after admitting you're racist? And, you know, How to Be an Anti-Racist, Abram Kenny's book, which we reference all the time, has a accompanying journal, mm. which has you really kind of journal about racist moments in your life and racist beliefs. And going through that's been great, yeah. right? Just to get it out on paper. And it's a safe way to do it. I think that's a real practical way that our listeners can work through this. It doesn't mean you need to necessarily shout it out on social media, which which isn't even always something, you know, I, mean, I think I do it sometimes. It's, it's not always recommended because it's also kind of taking the attention away and putting, you know, centering mm-hmm. a white person again. So, you know, I really need to check myself on that. But I think a real safe way to do it, especially to get started, is to journal about it. Just write about a racist thing you've done, said, thought. Just start writing about it. Yeah. You know, um, and keep it in one of those journals that has a lock on it. Yeah, <laughs> truly. <laughs> like, yeah, right. But, but seriously, I mean, it, yeah. it, it's a great way to get started. But, but you know, Ibram Kennedy says confession is the heartbeat of anti-racism. That's right. And I think there's a lot of truth to yep. that. Yep, yep. So it's really important in this stage to begin to understand that we are participants in a racist institution and a racist culture, that we benefit from racism and that we participate in perpetuating racism, even when that is not our intention. We've talked a lot about that on this podcast and instances where both you and I have done that. So that's something to highlight. Intention over impact. You've probably heard that before. I think this stage, we think more about intention than impact. Right. We get stuck on our intention, which which is one of those things I think holds us back from moving up the ladder because we are stuck at, well, I I was well intentioned. I am a good person. I didn't mean to make someone feel that way. And and that's based in that guilt and shame because it's making us protect our ego, essentially. Right. But that's also normal. Right. That's a normal thing to focus on intention over impact. But I think moving along the ladder, you start to focus more on on our impact and the importance of that. And at the same time, you know, thinking about our intention. It's not like we just deny that we had good intentions, Mm -hmm. but it's more about which one do we highlight or emphasize. Yeah. So Okun notes that this is an opportune time for white support groups. That aligns so perfectly with our experiences and that one of the main reasons we started this podcast. We want this to be a support group of sorts for, for white men who are going through this identity process and may get stuck in guilt and shame, where the easy option is to give up. Honestly, the fact that someone reached out to us who's in the stage makes me happy, you know, honestly, because it's part of the process and support and support is needed. So we're here to tell that listener to not give up. Yeah. 
You know, it's okay. This is where profound transformation can happen if you stick with it and you need other people. I think you, I can speak for you and you know, obviously say more about it. I'll, I, I think I would still be stuck if it wasn't for other people. Yeah, absolutely. I can still think about in my past nonprofit work, having the support of other white people struggling with the same things was yep. enormously important for me yep. in my path. Yeah. And why? Say, say more. I'm just curious. Why was that so helpful? I think it was it allowed, you know, it's easy to bottle fears and doubts up mm-hmm. and to be able to get to a stage where you, like you said, either you write it down, but then you talk about it and you hear that other people are having that too. And then being able to like riff off one another. And luckily at this nonprofit or, you know, there are white workers and also people of color workers. So like Mm -hmm. being able to talk to our white colleagues in a way that really helped to like be able to open up in a way that I wouldn't have brought my doubts to a person of color right away, but like got me to a place where then I could talk to, you know, my colleagues of color in a really productive way. And it's also like Tatum says, when we see mutually beneficial relationships, cross racial relationships, it's typically due to both people's identity processes. And so being able to have those conversations with my white colleagues and being like, what is my place here? Really early on in my nonprofit career, there are are things I look back on. I'm like, I just didn't know what I was doing there or I wasn't right there. But because of being open and honest with that with my other white colleagues who were thinking the same stuff helped us move past it. And I was able to have really powerful cross racial, cross cultural relationships because of that. Yep. Yeah, I think it's important note to note here, just as a sort of a practical piece of advice for our listeners, is we're just kind of reinforcing this importance of talking to other white people because if at all costs, unless depending on the relationship you have, just don't have these conversations, especially about guilt and shame with a person of color. Yeah, you know, because there, there's a lot to unpack there. I don't think yeah. we have time for that. And I, I, I just just Google it. Like, why not to why you shouldn't talk to black yeah, people about? Point. But just very quickly, like doing so really puts a burden on that person, right? It can re-traumatize them. It causes them to try to soothe you uh, or, or try to make you feel better. They might have to try to explain everything about racism. You know, it's, it's a very burdensome, it's a very exhausting experience for that person of color. And they're already, you know, exhausted, yeah, right? Like, right. you know, and again, this is generalizing. It's not all, not all people of color, but for the most part, it's a very taxing experience for them. And a lot, and at the, at the end of the day, they they don't understand, right? Yeah. They don't know what it means to be white. Yeah. They don't know what it feels like to have guilt and shame and blame in the context of being white. Yeah. So really, there's really not much to gain from that conversation except for the from the position of the white person right because mm-hmm. we we gain maybe a person of color making us feel better yeah right right and someone that's and i did this all let me just say i did this all the time yeah. like and it was sometimes it wasn't even a conversation just being in proximity to people of color maybe be like oh okay i'm a good white person right 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 because i'm here i'm chatting chatting away with this this person of color and and they're treating me like normal right so that must mean that i'm a good white person and you know, it just was a very, yeah, it, it's just not a very productive dynamic. And so that's, again, the importance of having white, yeah. white groups. Oh, it's so good. You're right. Yeah. And that's why, again, this ladder is helpful, too, because you'll see later where it's like, okay, this is where we, we start to seek out other white anti-racists yep. and other people of color once we've done all this stuff. And like, that's yep. why this is noted here. It's an opportune time for white support groups because you, you nailed it on the head. I'm a big proponent of white people should do the work that we can do ourselves first, dig into the history, 
read books from people of color who who write this stuff. Read Ibram X. Kendi and Dr. Beverly Daniel Tatum. Like all of those things white people can do on their own and should. To go to people who have been oppressed and be like, so tell me like about that. Mm-hmm. Like, how have white people like me oppressed? It's just like, it's just like yep. do the work. Like, yep. like you know, yes. like we have to, you can do that, right? And we talked about last episode, the importance of listening to people of color. And if, if we haven't gone through this stage, we won't be able to listen very no. well. Right, because right. everything they say, we're gonna respond with guilt and shame, which which will derail the whole conversation. Right. They'll see it. They'll see it on our face. Trust me, they'll see it on our faces. They'll see it in our body language, and then they'll be like, "Well, I've got to end this conversation because yeah. I don't want this white person to start crying or start getting upset or denying." Right. So we really have to. I think you said it well. If we're gonna go work in community with, alongside with people of color, we got to be ready to just do the work. Yeah. Or at least we need to kind of compartmentalize. We can't bring our identity work into that space. Right. Right. So either we need to prepare ourselves for that or we need to get to a certain level of this ladder, but we can't bring in our own stuff because for people of color, they're not at that place. They're like, we need to do the work because, and I can, I can understand if there's a person of color listening to this, I can, I can certainly see and understand if they're rolling their eyes and being like, why do white people have to do all this? This is such a waste of time. Just do the work. Right. Do that. Like, let's start dismantling racism. And I totally, totally get that. And and I I understand the urgency. And at the same time, this is essential. This identity work is essential to yeah. do the work. Right. But I totally get it. Mm-hmm. I totally get how anyone would listen to this and be like, this is such a waste of time. Just get off your lazy butts and start working for racial equity. Stop talking about how you know, guilty and how much shame you feel. Nobody cares. And, and I totally get that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it is, I can attest to at least that it is a part of, essential part of doing the work. Doing it productively. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder like if, especially with people of color who have had experiences with white people like that. Yeah. I bet they've got to be like, yeah, like don't come to me until you've worked through your stuff. Like 100%. that is very unproductive. Yep. I also love how Okun describes moving through it. So if we are to move through it, we must learn to sit with our discomfort and our feelings without immediately taking action and or denying them. With the understanding that the ability to sit with ourselves with a sense of both mercy and love is a key to our development as an anti-racist. So I repeat, with a sense of mercy and love. So I, I really love this point for a couple of reasons. Number one, it's that at the end of the day, we, we deserve mercy and love, you and I, mm-hmm. white other white people. For a long time, I thought I didn't deserve that. Yeah. I, I literally thought I don't deserve to be feel worthy. I don't deserve to. And I think this is a lot of what some of the, you know, the listeners said, too. Yeah, right. I don't deserve love. I don't deserve forgiveness. Like, I just kind of resign myself to a life of feeling crappy about myself and self-flagellation. And that's just, you know, I'm still going to work for racial justice, mm-hmm. but I was going to feel crappy about it the whole yeah. time. And that's just the way it's going to be. And like, I'd be like, okay, I'm doing the work, but I, I, I don't feel any joy. I feel, you know, we talked about this in yeah, previous episodes too. Just, and, and, you know, you can, you can see how, how the quality of the productivity is just not, not there. If yeah. you're just feeling down all the time, you know, I think that links so well to our conversations that we had in those culture episodes. Maybe some people are like, why do Ken and Paul have these two episodes on culture and finding a cultural identity? Like, mm-hmm. why? how does that fit in here? And that has a lot to do with this uh, positive identity piece. Yep. Because you'll remember I was talking about, like, I want to float in the lake yeah, yeah. without I, guilt and shame, right? Yes. Like, I want to be able to enjoy this day without always having to be like, oh, remember, though, you're a white man. So, mm-hmm. like, you got this out of privilege. 
you know, at the end of the day, what that doesn't help anyone or the cause in any way, because, you know, we obviously want to recognize it, right? right. But dwelling on it. Right. So if you're having a hard time with the mercy and love, the other way that I like to think about this is we, we kind of were just mentioning this a little bit, but like if you don't show yourself mercy and love or find a positive identity or cultural identity or whatever, you know, that is at the detriment of people of color at the end of the day because it keeps our energy on ourselves. Yes. And then we're unable to move up this ladder. Yep. And so showing compassion towards ourselves can seem selfish, but it's almost more selfish not to. So to be unable to be an anti-racist or do anti-racist work because we can't get out of guilt and shame is at the detriment of actually changing some stuff. So like yeah. for people who are experiencing this, remind yourself that like this is part of the process I have to be easy on myself. I have to like show myself some some mercy and love because if I don't, at the end of the day, like that's worse. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's that's spot on. Yeah, and if if you're looking to also figure out like you know we t- said earlier, how do I move through it? A lot of this sounds like really ambiguous and like right. okay, you know I can see how that some people are like okay, this sounds all great, but how do you do it? Yeah, you know one one thing you can do to to sit with discomfort and our feelings you know that that you know, mindfulness and meditation is a great way to do that mm-hmm. the other thing too is you don't need to like go on a retreat for 3 days and and meditate and sit through it it's just everyday mindfulness mm-hmm. like you mentioned it earlier if you feel a sense of discomfort if you feel some defensiveness or denial just for a moment just sit with that and yeah. be like what is this where is it coming from where do i feel it in my body okay and and look at it without judgment Mm-hmm. This is what helped me move through this stage, I think, is not looking at guilt and shame as good or bad mm-hmm. or going to this, I'm a bad person. It's suspending judgment for that moment while you're thinking through it, but then also being like, okay, what can I learn from this? Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's what, that's what guilt teaches us. Yeah. Right. That guilt is, is a, a signal from our body that something's wrong or, you know, something is pushing up against our morals. And so there's a lot to learn from that and we can take action from that. But in order to really get through the shame part, we need to be able to still look at ourselves objectively, unconditionally lovable, unconditionally, like we deserve forgiveness. I think that's what helps us move through this stage. Absolutely. All right, a real quick break here. I'm not even going to say it's our new website because I don't know if it's new anymore. But we want to remind our listeners out there that we do have that website www.themodernwhiteman.com where you can connect with us. You can learn more about the work, read blog posts. You can reach out to us. There's a contact us form and also subscribe to our newsletter. You know, that's really the way that we will be sending out updates on new episodes, new blog posts, uh, new future ways to get more involved. I guess I use new quite a bit in there. So a lot of this is still new. So please do check out that website. Please subscribe to the newsletter and feel free to reach out to us. As you see in this episode, we love when listeners reach out to us and you might hear your thoughts discussed in an episode. So I want to kind of finish up with some some sort of practical how to start to create a positive self-identity. For me personally, you know, I think I mentioned this, like I never really thought it was possible because I, I always kind of attach my identity to whiteness, to kind of all the bad things I did, kind of as a sort of like past oriented it was interesting. I actually looked into how, like, what is a positive self-identity and how to create one. Mm. And it's actually, there's a lot of autonomy and there's a lot of flexibility in how you create an identity. And that, again, that gives me hope, right? Like, yeah. it gives me hope that I can create one and I'm not sort of destined to have this negative identity all the time. 
so here here's kind of how I think about it or, or what's kind of what kind of came of my research if you will so the development of a positive identity involves I'll talk about four critical components number one it's building self-esteem two it's facilitating exploration of and commitment to self-definition reducing self discrepancies and fostering role formation and achievement okay so there's a lot of words in there mm-hmm. so let me break it down here a little bit Starting off with self-esteem and just kind of looking at that definition. Self-esteem is the confidence in one's own worth and abilities. And we talked about confidence yep. in the last episode and this sort of wariness around confidence because it's it's had sort of an ugly history with, with white men, especially in, in sort of his charisma and, and that sort of thing. But, but in the context of a positive self-identity and anti-racism, it's your worth, which we all have worth, That's right. right? Human beings. That is one thing we all share as human beings. We all have worth. And we're taught to, through different hierarchies and through cultural norms, that some people have more worth than others. And that's just a big fat lie, right? We all have worth. Yeah. And then abilities. We have abilities and we can also create or, or cultivate abilities to be more anti-racist. And then have confidence in, in those things means that we, you know, we practice it. We do it over and over again, just like with anything else. You start off not feeling as confident and building a new skill. But then over time, you build that confidence, and then the better you get at it. So I think that can apply to anti-racism work. We're unsure at first, and we don't know what we're doing. We don't necessarily have the skills. But the more you work at it, the more you build that confidence. I like that, because if you're going to have confidence in anything, it should be in your own worth and your own abilities. And you know what that made me think of is the idea of smart so I always push mm. back when people are like, who's smarter than who? Or is that person smarter? That person's not smart. I was like, define smart. Mm-hmm. Like there are mm-hmm. so many different, like building a bridge. All right, let's take that for example. Like I look at a bridge and it like makes my head want to explode. I'm like, how does that exist? Mm-hmm. It's standing there. How can people drive across it? Whoever can think that way, they're very smart in that area, right? Mm-hmm. Their abilities and worth building bridges is not what I have, but that's incredible. And then there's like, you know, anti-racism work. Maybe mm-hmm. I have a little bit mm-hmm. more experience with that than others. So everybody does have certain things. Who's smart? Who isn't? What do you mean? Like everybody brings something different to the table yep. and everybody has different specialties. So like really, I like how it says building that up, building that confidence in the form of self-esteem is, is helpful. Yeah. And then, and then your own worth. Again, we all have worth. We all deserve to feel like we're worthy. And to get through this stage five, that, that, that's really tough. Right, because because yeah. you if you're stuck in it, it's it's very much in conflict with each other. The shame tells us that we're not worthy, but yet in reality we are worthy. So it it really takes some effort and practice of kind of telling ourselves that we're worthy to be around other people who will tell us that we're worthy to really start to internalize that. So I think there's there's a lot of great meditations you can do that really is about sort of loving kindness and. So this idea that we have we're unconditionally loved, and I think that's been really helpful, but also being in community with other people is really critical. Okay, the other component of a positive self-identity is self-definition. So this is the evaluation by oneself of one's worth. This is so academic. Yes. <laughs> the evaluation of oneself by one's worth <laughs> as an individual in distinction from one's interpersonal or social roles. So essentially what that is saying is, what is that saying? <laughs> Um, so it's, it's, where do you fit in? So the social role is important. Where do you fit in society? What is your role in society? 
and then your evaluation of that. How、mm. well are you doing at that?、Mm. So, so being anti-racist as a white person is a role we can play、mm. and a role we should play. And then there、right? are roles within that. What was that yeah, map? Yeah, the that social ecosystem yeah, role. Yes,、yeah. exactly. So finding your role, and this is again where you can get creative. And this is based on your own strengths, your interests, your areas of influence, your areas of control, and different intelligence. Right, like. I don't know about bridge building and、right. sense of anti-racism, but but there's many different skills we have. So you can you can kind of get creative and very personal with this. What、mm-hmm. role can I play? And this is also kind of dovetailing into role formation, which we'll talk in a second. But self discrepancy was one that really was helpful for me to think about and talk about. So there's a self discrepancy theory, probably developed by a white man. And we're trying to、um, reduce this, right? Yes.、Reduce、so the、right. idea is that the theory states that individuals compare their actual self. To internalize standards or the ideal ought self, <laughs> so inconsistencies between actual and ideal and ought are associated with emotional discomfort. So let me simplify this again: we have our actual self, so where we are right now, who we are right now, and then we have our ideal self, where we want to be. The more we can reduce the gap between who we are now and who we want to be, the better we're going to feel.、Mm. Right? The more positive identity we'll have. So that's again with this ladder,、yep. right? We can look to where we're going, our our ideal self, which would be, I would say, the next stage. So try to avoid the temptation to look to the very top, right? Because because also you yeah, want to look at、right. the, at what's realistic here. You don't want to set yourself up for failure. So look at the next stage where you want to be. That's your ideal self, and the stage you're at now, which, which is your actual self, and then do the work. To get to your ideal self, and the more you feel like your ideal self matches up with your actual self, that creates a positive self identity.、Yeah. Being mindful about that, I think realistic about that. The thing that human beings do is we're never satisfied. It's like this individualized societal thing that has been seeped into us from the beginning, of like. I could be the you know leader of a huge organization, but I'm not Jeff Bezos. You know, like there's、yeah. like what is you're always looking to the yes, the next goalposts are the, moving. Yeah, yeah. the goalposts move all the time. Yeah. So a lot of like mindfulness or whatever, like you said, like journaling or writing、mm-hmm, or、mm-hmm. or even some meditation to really like not be bamboozled. Ah. I'll drop that in wherever I can. <laughs> Every like, episode, we gotta fit that in <laughs> to not be bamboozled by like what society says you should always be striving for. But like, yeah, what is important for you, and like, what is your idea? Where do you want to be? Like yourself, what's going to make you happy, and、mm-hmm. not having external things swaying you one way or another. Yep, yep. And then finally, role formation. So this is this is really similar, at least in my mind, to self definition. But it, role confusion, on the other hand, is being unsure of who you are and where you fit. Role formation is really at the core of this podcast. What is white men's role in、mm-hmm. equity work? That's what we're trying to define.、Yeah. What is our role and and forming that role? And as we said earlier, there's many many different roles that we can play. But the ultimate goal, of course, is being anti-racist, and that's where this ladder comes in, right? So the ultimate goal, what we're always working towards, is being anti-racist. But there's different stages along the way, and, and there's different ways that we can be anti-racist and roles that we can take. But I just love this because it, what、yeah. it did was it allow it allows like like I said creativity flexibility autonomy we can define ourselves right right each one of us is I think if we were to write a mission statement or something like that and this is something you can even do as a listener write down maybe what's your mission statement what does a positive self identity look like to you 
maybe write down what are some abilities you have, um, what role do you want to play, where do you think you fit in, you know, just start to craft something. But but the real takeaway for me was like this ideal self versus actual self. And the more we can work towards and align with that, that ideal self, that's when we'll feel positive. So it really has nothing to necessarily nothing to do with like what our past is and whiteness. And I mean, obviously that's relevant and important, but self-identity to me is future oriented. Mm. Who, who do I want to be? So there's a great quote from Adam, Adam Grant, actually. Your past self shouldn't define your future goals. Hmm. I think that's a really way to sum up self-identity and identity formation and how it can be positive. And this is the great thing, I think, what gives us hope is that you have always have the control and the ability to visualize that ideal self and, and work towards it. Yeah, absolutely. And in the context of this latter, again, to be anti-racist, having that positive self-identity is a crucial point to becoming anti-racist and to really like impacting society as a whole. And so it's like a win-win, right? It's like, I don't have to choose work on a positive self-identity or should I like Mm -hmm. live in this place where I'm in shame all the time and support other people? It's like, no, Mm -hmm. you get both. If if you're working on positive self-identity and you start to move towards stage six, again, slow, painful grind. The way that you think about it here that you laid out is so super helpful to be able to think about that. That again, like that's how we can be anti-racist white men. So like most things in this podcast, we talked a lot. (laughs) We're not going to finish out stage six and stage seven, which are kind of the next two that we work on this podcast, which is fine, right? I think this was a really good conversation and really important to focus on guilt, shame, blame, especially because of our listener who, again, thanks for reaching out. Like Mm -hmm. that's what we want this to be. And I, I, because of your openness, I have no doubt other listeners feel this. 100%. Yeah, I, yeah, I was going to say, it takes courage. Yeah. It takes a, a ton of courage yeah. to, to reach out to reach out to other people. And that and that is a huge step yep. towards working up this ladder. So, and I, yeah, I guarantee there's going to be hopefully hundreds of listeners, but lots of people who are going to be like, wow, I'm glad someone said something because I've been feeling this for years. And oh, man, I feel so much better. Yeah, so. that's right. And the next stage of how we work through our guilt, shame and blame, we're working on that, giving ourselves mercy and love, working on that positive self identity. Then you get into open up and acknowledgement in stage six. And that's really where we recognize that we've been bamboozled. Right. And then you like start to kind of again get out of this individualism and that's how we can move so we'll in a future episode you know we'll talk about those stages more because then when you're moving towards stage six stage seven into stage eight that's where we get into collective action where we're working with all sorts of people from all identities and so it's it's a process and we're working on it and again if you want to read this white paper check out our notes because it's in there as well but we will talk about that in a future episode So until next time, let's keep learning, stay humble, and do the work. Thank you for listening to The Modern White Man. Please connect with us on our website, themodernwhiteman.com, where you can learn more about our work, read blog posts with topics revolving around the continuous work of being anti-racist and anti-sexist, and subscribe to our newsletter to stay in the loop with various relevant topics and future ways to get more involved. As always, if you are enjoying this podcast, please subscribe, rate, and share, both individually and on social media. That's how we get the most traction. After all, the more white men that have these conversations, the better.